So turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 3. That's where we're up to. Uh, We're going to be looking at two groups of people that are presented here in Mark 3, verses 7 to 19. There won't be a whole lot of slides happening this evening, just that one for your reference there that you see. So you'll just have to listen real close, okay? The first group we're going to look at, we'll just call, as you see it there, the crowd. And then the second group is the called. So two groups, the crowd and the called. Let's begin by reading Mark 3, 7 to 12 today. And then we'll also read more later on, but we're going to stop for the time being at 12. The Word of God says... Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed Many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It'll be helpful if we remind ourselves of what happened just prior to this. You know, our passage last time ended with verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to do what? To destroy him. To kill him. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they have banded together with the politicians of the day. The bigwigs, the Herodians, they've teamed up to see how they can do away with Jesus. Why were they doing that? Well, because of all the things mentioned in chapter 2 that we went over and the beginning of chapter 3. He was, Jesus was to them a blasphemer, a compromiser, and a tradition breaker. And they hated him. They couldn't stand him. And they couldn't just brush him off as just some person who will go away and he'll be gone in a few days. He'll pass off the scene. They couldn't just brush him off like that because he carried with him obvious authority. He was healing people and working miracles in front of massive crowds. And so they perceived him as a threat to their authority a threat to their power, a threat to their influence with the people. And we can see in this passage just how much of the religious leaders' influence was vanishing because they didn't like Jesus. And rather than people flocking to the Pharisees, who were the people flocking to? They're flocking to Jesus. And I'm sure they didn't like that at all. So the solution in their minds was no less than in their fallen ideas, we've got to kill him. 
and be done with him. So, it's at that point that I think we see uh, Jesus exercising some discretion here. He knows people are after him. They want to kill him. So what does he do? Does he stay right there with them and taunt them and tempt them to do it right then and there? If you're going to do it, do it now. No, he departs. The text says he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Verse 7. It wasn't his time to be taken by them yet. Jesus is in control of what he's going to do. He's not going to let them dictate the timing of all of his messianic functions. In fact, even when the demons come, these these demon-oppressed people are coming and seeing him and falling down and screaming, you are the son of God. He won't let them do that. He, he squelches them. He shuts them up. He doesn't want to be made into a political Messiah. And he knows that people hearing that message from the demons even with the notions that were preconceived of what the Messiah was supposed to be in the Jewish mind, they were going to misunderstand from the very beginning what his function and what his mission was. So he shuts them up. Uh, His mission, according to him, involved other things, right, that they didn't even realize. And he'll need things like more time to live and to preach. And then he'll need to die. They couldn't believe that one. He'll need to suffer and die. And then he'll rise. And they didn't understand much of that. But Jesus knew what he needed to do, so he withdraws and gets away from that conflict and goes down by the sea. And... um, I think in this withdrawal, we see him clearly moving away from the synagogues. Just like uh, in the Old Testament where God's people Israel as a whole generally had rejected him and broken God's covenant over and over and over and over again. Just like that. Just like their forefathers, the religious leaders of the nation Israel at this time were also rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus withdraws from there. In verse 6, he's in the synagogue. In verse 7, he withdraws. And we'll see in this gospel, in Mark's gospel, he doesn't really return to the synagogues at all except for one occasion, and that is in his hometown of Nazareth. And guess what happens there? They reject him too. They despise him. But basically, this is a turning point where Jesus is done with the synagogues. The religious leaders, the religious elite has rejected him. And so from then on, he preaches to the crowds who gather around him in the open country. So let's look at this crowd. This is the first group that we'll talk about. Mark says... Uh, when he went out with his disciples to the sea, 
He didn't get much rest or much solitude, did he? It says a great crowd followed him, meaning a very large crowd. And Mark tells us where all they were coming from. It's amazing. When you start looking at a map at these places, this wasn't locals. Uh, People were coming from Judea. People were coming from Jerusalem, which was anywhere from 75 to 100 miles away, depending on what route you took. They were coming from Idumea, which is a region even farther south than Jerusalem. They were coming from beyond the Jordan, and they were coming also from the area of Tyre and Sidon to the north. So basically, Mark's saying, every direction you look on the map, miles away, they're flocking to Jesus. And they weren't just Jews either. This was most likely a mixed crowd. For instance, the area of Tyre and Sidon especially was not a Jewish area. That would be Gentiles coming. So his fame is just growing tremendously. By the way, that's pretty amazing when you consider there was no cars, there's no phones, there's no radio, there's no social media. But people have heard about him from hundreds of miles away, from at least 100 miles away and more. And they make their way to him. I want to go to that guy. I want to be healed. Let's notice what the crowd was actually doing. What was their, um, we might call it their agenda. What was their agenda? It says in verse 8 that they heard what he was doing, meaning they heard about his uh, healings, his casting out of demons and so forth. And in verse 10, they just wanted to touch him. They wanted to be healed, right? So you've got probably hundreds, maybe thousands of sick, diseased, and demon-oppressed people pressing in on Jesus to the point where he thinks they might even crush him because he tells his disciples, get a boat ready and kind of follow me up the shore because if I am starting to get crushed, I'm going to hop in the boat and we're going to push out a little ways from the crowd. He was concerned for his safety there, for doing wise, making wise decisions, having a, a boat there ready for safety. By the way, this, this isn't the main point of the message by any means, but this shows me that Jesus knows a thing or two about human stress and pressures, right? I think sometimes we forget what all he uh, went through as a human being. Jesus knows what stress feels like. He's got, just think about it, he's got religious leaders and bureaucrats breathing down his neck, wanting to kill him. He's got diseased people pressing and crowding him, trying to touch him. He's got demon-possessed people just all over the place falling down and shouting his identity. There's no rest for him. There's no solitude for him, humanly speaking. So can I just speak to the stressed-out person that's here today? Are you stressed out? Anybody stressed out? Jesus knows what stress is like. 
He knows what the pressures of life are like. Hebrews 2 teaches us that Jesus was made like us in every respect. And Hebrews 4 says because of that, he's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every respect like we are except without sin, praise God. So I'm glad that we can take our stress to someone who knows exactly what stress is like. He knows all about it. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be persecuted, hunted. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be called a crazy person. He knows what it's like for his family to think he was crazy. We'll see that maybe next time. And he knows far more about physical stress and suffering than any of us ever will. He's experienced way more of that than we ever will. He knows all of that better than we even do. And I just hope that that is comforting to us people who can get very stressed out and think, nobody knows what this is like. Jesus does. And I'm glad we can take all of that to him and there's comfort there. Are you glad for that? Oh, man, I'm glad for that. I'm glad we could take our stress to Jesus. He knows all about it. So back to this crowd. What is their agenda? What is it exactly that they're after? I kind of asked that question earlier, but we really haven't directly answered it yet. Isn't their agenda here to have Jesus meet their needs? Is that what we see? They don't really appear to care too much about Jesus as a person. They just view him as this walking ball of power. I just got to touch that guy and I'll be healed. Let me get close enough to touch him. I'll be good to go. Just need some healing. If we crush him to get there, oh well. If I got to step over or on somebody else to get there, oh well. That's what I'll do doesn't seem like there's any personal love for Jesus here. It's more like a mob, a clamoring mob that's looking out for themselves, willing to crush him to get healing for themselves. And they don't want to listen to him in any meaningful sense. They just want freedom and healing. Now, what would it look like today, you think, to be a part of a crowd like that in our day? That's an interesting question, right? I think it happens all the time, too. People um, seeking the, what, seeking to be free of their guilt and their pain and their suffering and their burdens and they hear about this Jesus who will lift their burdens. But do they really want to hear from him? I, I kind of picture the situation like this if, if, if we were looking at it from a visual standpoint. You know, they walk up to Jesus looking for relief. It's a good thing to seek relief from Jesus. But if you stop there, that's a different story. So they walk up to Jesus Seeking relief, 
And he looks them in the face, and he's just about to open his mouth to tell them something about himself and what it really means to be a follower of his. And they pull the dumb and dumber, if you've seen that movie. They put their finger out and put it right on his lips. No, 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 you don't need to talk, Jesus. I don't really want to listen to you all that much. I don't want to hear any of your commands or any of your demands of me. I don't want to hear about your lordship claims over my life. I just need you to heal me and deliver me and forgive me. If you do that, we'll be cool. Now get out of your way. What are they doing? What are we doing if that's us? They've muzzled Jesus. They've muzzled him. He's come to give them the truth, and all they want is some benefit from him without actually listening to him. I think that happens more than we care to admit, right? There is a, um, there's a pastor that I respect in many ways. His name is Jeff Durbin. He pastors Apologia Church out in Arizona. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. When he talks to little children who have made a, a profession of faith in Christ, he'll ask them questions like I would, but I like his questions here. You'll, you'll hear them. Um, he asks them these questions to see if they've really understood what Jesus is saying. And he'll tell them in very simple terms, do you understand what it means that Jesus is Lord of your life? And he'll say just in very simple terms that we can all understand, even a kid, it means that he can tell you what to do. Do we realize that? Do we think about that a lot? He can tell us what to do. That's a really simple way of putting it, right? And and when when we repent of our sins and we come to Christ truly, um, we're saying to him, I want you to be not only my Savior, but my Lord. Whatever you say, I'm bound to obey, right? You tell me what to do. Whatever your word says, I'll set out to do it. And I fear that there's just a lot of people who seem like they've come to Jesus who really hasn't, they've heard about the benefits of Jesus, but they really haven't taken the time to listen to him, to hear Jesus tell them what to do. Not what to do to be saved, but what to do, how to follow him, how to obey him post-salvation. Here's another example um, of how this happens. My dad was the pastor of this church for 33 years, as most of you know, and he would tell me stories about people who uh, were outside the church weren't members of the church, didn't go to this church at all, but they would come and ask if he would officiate their wedding, right? This happened to him many times over the years. Um, And of course, being the good pastor that he was, he would require that they sit down with him and go through some premarital counseling so that he can understand what are these two people, they think they want to get married, but do they even know what marriage is? And for that matter, more importantly, What do they understand about the gospel? And I don't think he'll mind me sharing this with you just to make a general point. Um, 
he shared with me that most people will say all the right things in those counseling sessions with a pastor. They'll say all the right answers. They'll answer everything correctly. They'll act like they believe the gospel. They'll act like they really want to get involved in the church if they hadn't already been going somewhere prior to that. And then the wedding day comes, and it's a beautiful day and a beautiful ceremony, and everything goes wonderfully, and they're happy. But then shortly after, they just, they just disappear, right? And it becomes abundantly evident at that point that they really weren't serious about the lordship of Christ in their life. They acted like they were listening. They feigned interest in Christ. They feigned interest in his church. And yet, by their actions after the wedding, they revealed they were just only interested in their agenda. We need a pastor to marry us. And so we'll just say whatever we need to say to get our agenda accomplished. They weren't all that interested in God's agenda for them, right? I just use that as an example. I think that's a picture of how this crowd was functioning and how it functions today. They had an agenda. They appeared somewhat interested in Christ. I mean, they're traveling many miles to get to him. They're somewhat interested in certain, to a certain extent, but when it came down to it, they wanted what they wanted. And what they wanted wasn't really to listen or bend the knee to Christ. It was merely to receive some benefit from him, right? So here's just a straightforward question for all of us. Today, who sets the agenda of your life? Does the sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ, set the agenda in your life? Or do you set it? Do we demand that he meet our expectations? Or do we pray and strive Lord, make me and my will line up with your agenda. Do we listen to what his agenda even is? Because it's found in his word. We cannot have him as savior without having him, without being willing to have him as our Lord, right? If we're not willing to obey him, then we haven't really repented before him. Repenting means you turn away from your sin, not hang on to it, right? God calls Christians to be holy. There's a verse in, um, in 1 Peter that our teen class in Awana learned a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, which says... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And holiness just basically means obedience to Christ's lordship, letting him tell you what to do because he's your master. This crowd, uh, they gave no thought for Jesus as their master. And you can see that throughout the gospel. And the, the vast majority of people 
didn't believe in him. They didn't believe what he was saying. They just wanted the goodies. They wanted to be healed. They wanted his blessings without actually, um, without actually taking up their cross and following him, like he would say later. And people today who have experienced what they think is the grace of God, if it really was the grace of God, it will always result in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. That's what the grace of God does to a person. Changes everything. So that's the crowd. Now let's look at the second group and kind of contrast here. Not the crowd, but the called. We might call them the chosen. Follow along with me as I read now. This is verses 13 to 19, okay? It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, my aim uh, isn't to go through these men's names and talk about each one of them. That could be for another time. I, I really instead want to focus on this. I think that what we see here in Christ choosing for himself his 12 apostles is a microcosm of how God works in salvation. Unlike the large crowd who followed Jesus out of their own agenda and out of their own ulterior motives, we might say, this text says that Jesus called to himself those whom he desired. And it says that they did what in response? They came to him. Now, didn't the crowds come to him also? Yes, but they came in a superficial way for their own reasons. These 12 came to him because Christ called them. He chose them. Before we go any further, by the way, why 12? You ever thought about that? Why not 50 or 100? Wouldn't that be more impactful, Jesus? There were probably more disciples following Jesus at this time than just these 12. He wasn't limited to those 12. Why not pick all of them to be an apostle, right? That's not how Jesus thought about it at all. Was, was 12 a significant number um, concerning God's people? It was, wasn't it? Who were God's chosen people all through Old Testament history? Israel. And how many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve, right? Twelve tribes. Do you see that significance? The, 
The 12 here were the beginning of a new people of God. And it'll be made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. And these chosen apostles form the very foundation of the entire Christian church. Ephesians uh, 2.20 teaches us that the church, the household of God, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So don't miss the significance of this. Jesus is choosing the people that he's going to build his church upon. He's laying the foundation. And Mark tells us, uh, what what was he going to do with these men? What was his purpose? Verse 14 says he appointed them for these reasons. One, so that they might be with him. And then two, so that he might send them out to preach with his authority which included casting out demons. So Jesus handpicks these 12 apostles, firstly to be with him. By the way, rabbis at this time, I think I've said this in the past, but I'll just reiterate, rabbis of this time, they didn't usually pick their own students. This was a very unconventional way of doing it. If people wanted to study under a certain rabbi, they would apply. Kind of like we would say we were going to apply to a college. We would get accepted or denied, right? You would have to apply to study under a well-known rabbi. But Jesus, he handpicks his own students. And there's where the, the microcosm is. We see in that choosing a picture of how Christ is going to build his church. He's going to build it. By sovereign grace. God chooses. And by his power people come. That's how he's always done it by the way. Um, God chose Abraham. Out of all the world. God chose Israel. Out of all the nations of the earth. God has chosen his people. By sovereign election. Since the very beginning. And that is one of the most precious doctrines in the entire scripture to me personally. That God chooses his people from eternity past. Not just Abraham or Israel, but Christians. When I finally came to see and understand the the doctrines of grace they're called in the scriptures it was like being saved all over again I'll just be honest with you I cannot think of another doctrine in the entire Bible that has had more influence on me and my thinking and how I view God and salvation nothing with bigger impact than these reformed doctrines of grace God's teaching about being totally depraved and dead in sin. God's teaching about how he has chosen a people from eternity past to set his love upon them and save them in time. And his teaching about how he sent his son to pay for those people's sins on the cross. He will save his people from their sins, said the angel to Joseph, right? 
And then God's teaching about the, the sovereign call of those chosen people. In, all in God's good timing, as they hear the gospel, he causes the, the scales to fall off. And he calls them out of darkness into spiritual life. And they come running to him like Lazarus. Hey, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man takes up life again and comes out. And then God sovereignly preserves his people from beginning to end. If he chose them in eternity past, he's going to keep them into eternity future. Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 39. These are very humbling doctrines. God chose me? Have you thought about that? I was dead in sin? Instead of leaving me there, helpless, he comes to me, makes me alive in Christ. And that choice, he made it in eternity past. And it wasn't due to anything he foresaw in me. It was just purely out of his good pleasure. Can't explain it. But when you see it... it what do you do except fall down in worship and say, why me, Lord? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I noticed uh, the first thing that came from Paul's pen in the book of Ephesians when he begins to list out these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Notice what he says. He goes right to this doctrine. Ephesians 1, 3 and following says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved or the beloved one, Christ. That is, that is stunning. Grace is a whole lot deeper than some of us imagine it. It is not just that God makes salvation possible. It's that he actually accomplishes it from start to finish in the lives of those whom he has graciously chosen. He works out every detail along the way. 1 Corinthians 1 says it over and over again. God chose. God chose. God chose. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And the conclusion is, so don't boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He did everything. You didn't do anything. Salvation is of the Lord, like Jonah 2.9 says. We see Christians all over the Bible referred to as God's chosen ones. 
Colossians 3.12, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, 1 James 2.5, 1 Peter 2.4, 1 Peter 2.9, Romans 11. The list goes on and on and on. We're also referred to as the called or God's elect. All of those things point to the fact that we are God's by his doing, by his choice. And we read things like this in Scripture Acts 16, 14, it says, God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's what God had to do for you and me to get us to understand the gospel. To even see our predicament, he had to open our heart. Did we ask him to do that? He did it. He's sovereign. We're not inclined to go that way on our own. In our sin, we're inclined away from believing. We're inclined away from God, always toward sin and away from God. That's just our nature. We don't have it in us. God has to make it so. What does God tell Ezekiel to do? In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, he tells him to preach to the dead bones. Dead bones can't do anything. Dead, dry bones. He says, preach to them. And, and we're dead just like those bones. We're dead in sin, according to Ephesians 2, unable to respond. But at the right moment, God sends his spirit and he calls to himself whom he wills through the preaching of the gospel and the bones begin to rattle. And they begin to come together, and it's like he flips on the power switch, and he makes us alive in Christ for the first time. And now we see it. What am I saying with all this? I just want to make it crystal clear that if you're saved today, it is only because God chose you from before the foundation of the entire universe. Revelation says the names that were written in the, in the book of life were written there before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. So do, do we realize uh, what God has done in our lives? Do we realize? Do we really grasp it? He has worked out all the details of your life, including the people in your life who shared the gospel with you in order for you to hear and be saved. He worked it out where you would be exposed to his word or his gospel somehow. And he gave you repentance and faith as gifts from his hand. What does Ephesians 2.8 say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift? The grace and the faith. That's God's sovereignty in our lives. And I just want to give him all the glory for what he does in salvation. And just reading about the choosing of these 12 prompted me to reflect on it because that is a microcosm of how God chooses his people now. He's done it in eternity past, but he brings it to fruition now. And, and all that talk about God's sovereignty, 
it's not meant to be confusing to us. It's meant to be encouraging to us. It's, it's intended to cause us to worship God, right? Of course, we're responsible to believe the gospel and receive Christ. Yes, he doesn't make us robots or, or drag us to himself against our will. Man's responsibility to believe the gospel, just it works hand in hand with God's sovereignty, and maybe he only knows how it works that way. But they're both clearly taught in Scripture. Here's one way to think of it. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I wanted to be saved. Did you? Obviously you did, right? But the deeper question would be, okay, let's ask, some, let's ask ourselves, why did I want to be saved? Well, it's because I realized I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And I realized Jesus was the only Savior who could save me. But then you go deeper. Why did I realize that and others didn't? Because I'm smarter or more spiritual? Not at all. wasn't anything in me. It was God's grace. In other words, if you ask enough why questions, you'll get back to the fountainhead of grace, God himself. God sought me out. I wasn't seeking him, and neither were you. Romans 3 says nobody seeks after God. God had to be the initiator. One man called him the hound of heaven, running us down, rescuing us. The hound of heaven, I like that. So here in Mark 3, 13 to 19, we see Jesus choosing those whom he desired, it says, choosing his apostles, and he appointed them. And later on, even in the book of John, we read it a few weeks back when we read in our public scripture reading, John 15, verse 16, we hear Jesus referring back to this very moment. And he's in this intimate uh, conversation with his disciples just before he goes to the cross and you can tell he's clearly thinking about back to when he chose them because he says this and this is true of every Christian too he says you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit that's why we sing songs like my Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. Beautiful truth. And we just, we just see the doctrine of election pictured here at the very beginning of the foundation of the Christian church when Jesus chooses for himself, calls to himself these 12 men to be his apostles are you noticing the two differences in this group? Going back to the main thrust of this message, this contrast. The crowd, remember, wanted to set the agenda for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do this for us. The called, or the chosen, lets Jesus set the agenda. Jesus, teach us what to do. You've called us, we've come, we're listening. We're going to watch you. We're going to learn from you. Teach us. Tell us what to do. And they go out and they do it. 
And he gives them his authority. And this passage, it doesn't have any, if you notice, it doesn't have any teaching in it from the lips of Jesus. It's just historical events that happened, almost like a bridge from one act of Mark into the next. But my goodness, it shows us a lot. Makes us examine ourselves, makes us uh, think about our motives in coming to Jesus. Do we just view him as a remover of guilt, but not as someone we really ought to listen to or obey? He's not just Savior, he's Lord. I hope everyone in this room knows Christ today, and I hope you know him more like the apostles did rather than how the crowd did. They knew of him. The crowd knew of him. but They knew some things that he did, but they did very little meaningful, humble listening or obeying. So, knowing what we know about the grace of God, how he operates in his sovereign grace, I hope that we can just lay down any agenda that we've tried to set for Jesus. And let him set the agenda. What would you have me do, Lord? And that just brings us all the way back full circle with, it comes back to the word of God, doesn't it? How do we know what Jesus wants us to do? How do we know what he's saying to us? Do we listen real close at night on our bed or something? No, he's speaking through his word. So it's by reading what he says in his word. Immerse yourself in this word. He, he's speaking to you there. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for this word. Make us people who love your word more and more. Lord, may we be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like you said in your Sermon on the Mount. May we be people who are seeking to be holy, just as you are holy. Help us to see the difference in the two groups that we've looked at today. One, just wanting Jesus' benefits without listening, without obeying they want him on their terms. While the other group is called by sovereign grace. They spend time with Jesus. They know him. They immerse himself, themselves in what he's saying. They live happily under his authority and his lordship. Lord, I thank you that you are still calling to yourself people out of darkness and into your marvelous light like Peter wrote. Encourage your called people today and convict anyone who finds themselves in this crowd group so that they might perhaps finally come to see who you are and finally come to true repentance and faith and the resulting obedience. We thank you for the work of grace in our lives. Before we wanted anything to do with you, you were working. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.